0: Um, so without further ado, um, I would like to introduce our first speaker, who's Dr. Mike Sag from uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease. He's also associate d- dean of global health, has had a long and illustrious career um, advancing the field of HIV therapeutics and translational science. Um, continues to lead the UAB-CFAR, um, led us um, in uh, the ISUSA group with the most recent set of ISUSA treatment and prevention guidelines published in JAMA this past summer. And um, uh, on a personal note, is one of the world's leading experts on musical theater, which isn't something you would necessarily expect from someone from Birmingham, Alabama, and what makes him particularly near and dear to my heart. So Dr. Sag is going to be speaking today about something I think we've all been challenged by, which are the use of telemedicine, particularly during COVID for HIV and STI care and treatment and prevention. Um, and his talk is Benefits and Limitations of Telemedicine. Dr. Sag.
1: Thank you, Dr. Landovitz. Um, it's great to be with you all. And Obviously, this is not a topic that um, I don't think any of us are really expert in. I think maybe Dr. Spock, who comes to us later, has been working with Project Echo for a long time, which was one of the first telemedicines that was uh, out of, originally, uh, Dr. Aurora out of New Mexico, developed it for hepatitis C. But all of us during the COVID era became um, experts or at least experience to some degree with telemedicine out of necessity. So with that disclaimer um, that I'm not, I wouldn't call myself uh, an expert in this, but I certainly have used it a lot. And I was at UAB, like at almost all of your institutions, uh, we implemented it. I dove into it a little bit. And then in preparation for this talk, also uh, explored a lot of the nuances and cutting edge issues Regarding telemedicine. So with that as a introduction, I do not do any consulting, uh, for companies. Uh, I have been a PI on a couple of research grants from Pharma listed here. So we're going to go over what just definitions. What is telemedicine versus telehealth? Uh, how's it implemented? What are the different differences between synch, synchronous and asynchronous uh, telemedicine, telehealth. What are the benefits? What are the limitations and how can we use it in our practice? And I'll get all this done roughly at about 20 to 25 minutes. Let's start with definitions. Telehealth is anything where you use technology to help provide healthcare. It's very broad. Um, it can be when a patient's in the room, but it's also something that can be done when a patient is at home telemedicine is more of a cms definition so having to do with billing and collections and that's basically defining of an interactive time between a patient and a provider using video and audio together and that's important because during covid a lot of these rules were modified such that audio only was then included in the definition for telemedicine and that's important because just a phone call then could be viewed as some engagement that you theoretically, if not actually, could bill for. Uh, and so CMS sets all those rules. A big question is, will that continue? And I don't know the answer to that just yet. Let's get into the definitions what I mentioned earlier. Asynchronous. What it means is that you and the patient are inter- interacting, but not at the same time. So we'll talk about that in a second, but that's oftentimes we think of when we think of telemedicine, we're thinking about like what we're doing now, talking to one another, audio, video, and we have an ability to chat in real time. Um, asynchronous is where it's happening probably not through audio and video, usually through text or a portal. Uh, and it can be done through provider to provider, provider to patient. Synchronous, as I just mentioned, is sort of what we're doing now in real time. And at least in my mind, before I learn more about this, that's what I thought all of telemedicine was, is that patient can't make it to their visit. All right, we'll do a video link and we'll chat. The CMS definition, as I mentioned earlier, has changed uh, uh, during the pandemic. And uh, and so we're going to talk about all the what these changes are and what they mean. So I'm going to go through, um, with apologies, a, a lot of what UAB has done. Now, this is not, please, this is not meant to promote UAB. It's just what I'm most familiar with. But I think it is very representative of what a lot of your institutions are doing now. You may be doing even more uh, than what we've started here, and I'm happy to hear and chat about that in the Q&A and perhaps later in the ending panel But I'm just sharing with you, because this is how this came to me, and I think it's pretty representative of what we're all dealing with. So asynchronous uh, telehealth basically is a patient portal. Uh, It's a a secure HIPAA-compliant entity. A patient gets registered. um, It goes into their medical record. They ask questions. We respond, um, and, and it's recorded. So it's actually part of the medical record. Um, and and this is something that I think almost all of us have these days, and it's been developed over the last five to ten years. Now, something that's kind of new, and here I'm using Stanford's example of, of second opinions, and this is just open to the public. So it's an asynchronous uh, connection where, uh, as you can see down towards the bottom, uh, a patient can it's, send my second opinion to me, and I'd like, here, here's my information and an expert, a, a consultant at Stanford will respond, um, and, and give the second opinion. Uh, there are limitations that we'll talk about in a second, but this is some, this is another example of how telehealth, uh, is done. Now, synchronous, we've already talked about, it's largely what we did a lot during the COVID epidemic, especially in our HIV clinics. Um, uh, I'll just say out front that I don't find it as satisfying. Uh, there's things I missed, um, I'm sure, when I saw patients. In fact, when patients started coming back in, there was one guy I saw who um, didn't mention anything about any pain in his hand. And, and as I'm looking down to do my exam, his left hand is just swollen. Uh, and he had a boxer's fracture uh, from hitting a wall or something with his fist. And he didn't mention it, but I noticed it on exam. I would have never seen that during a telemedicine visit. So there are some limitations. Um, but it is easy to do once the patient and the clinician get the technology working. But there are disparities that I'll talk about in a second. And again, this limited physical exam is an example of what I just said. And there are technologies that allow us to do um, stethoscope exams and even eye exams and that type of thing. But collecting specimens is a limitation. You aren't able to even draw blood unless you have a partnership with a community-based health entity that can go into the house, into the clinic, I'm sorry, into the location where they're taking and and collect the specimens. And that has impact uh, on all kinds of things that we do in our HIV clinics, uh, be it PrEP or uh, regular clinics when we're screening for other disorders like STIs. The disparities you see here, uh, this is UAB data, but I think it's pretty generalizable that we noticed that m- racial minorities, ethnic minorities, were less likely to use video. I don't know the reason for that. Uh, it could be the technology, but it also may be a lack of trust that their likeness and image is being and somehow broadcast. Older folks, uh, like me, uh, maybe are less likely to use video, and again, that could be because of technology limitations or discomfort uh, with knowing what to do. And there's a corollary to this, that people who are on Medicare or Medicaid are also less likely to use the video, not because it's not paid for, it's just uh, one of the uh, associated uh, risk factors for not using video. So what are the causes of the disparities? Um, Lack of access to infrastructure, now that could be um, lack of internet, uh, but it could also be that they don't have a cell phone that's uh, what we would call a smartphone uh, and using an LTE network or a network that's strong enough to support signal. Um, again, this also translates into video conferencing limitations. We get so used to our computers and Zoom and that type of thing, but other folks may not. And then the lack of technology liter- Literacy. One of the most exciting things, I think, that will come out of this is e-consults. Now, you saw it earlier about second opinion. That's a little different. But this is a peer-to-peer structured questions to a specialist. And um, they actually reduce um, physical referrals by up to 30%. Uh, so that means you, you can still provide the information. Uh, but you don't necessarily need to have the patient come in and be evaluated. This can be done simply in a peer-to-peer uh, type of connection. And it's by definition asynchronous in terms of the patients. It can also be asynchronous in terms of the, the peer-to-peer and just sort of a request comes in from a doc who doesn't have an ID specialist, for example, or an HIV specialist and says, I've got this case with X. Oftentimes, we do this all the time on email, Right. You have a colleague who uh, calls you or or reaches out to you through email and says, tell me what you think of this. That's an asynchronous e-consult. The issue is most of the time we're not charging for that, but it is complicated because if we do it formally, it requires um, at least five minutes of a specialist time, but consent is required. So we need to have the consent of the patient. And, um, and access to the medical records, and that's probably the biggest hurdles. If we're working on a closed system, be it Cerner or Epic or one of the other vendors, uh, we're good within our own house. But getting through the firewall of another institution, especially with all of the ransomware and other things that are out there, uh, that's going to take uh, uh, that's going to take some changes, which emphasizes the importance of a national health information exchange. It's technically doable, big time, and we we have the ability to break down those walls and be able to share. Uh, the VA system, for example, is good at that. I mean, you can get into a patient who was seen in uh, an Albuquerque um, and now is in, for example, Birmingham. I can see what happened to them. That's not true with most other private systems, and uh, and you can do different sort of things. The so challenges, as I just mentioned, about EMRs. Insurance and charging is a problem. The consent I mentioned, we have to have HIPAA compliant communications. And of course, if we're going to do this in the same way, copays would be a part of this. It's not likely that we're going to solve this problem in the next uh, several months to a year or two. I think another exciting area, and then I'm going to switch, segue over to COVID, um, is how we can use telemedicine to take care of patients in other ICUs or in acute care settings. Not everyone has a neurosurgeon. Not everyone has an ID specialist. Um, uh, sometimes it's a it's a well-trained generalist who's doing the pulmonary uh, activities. But neurology, critical care, nephrology, ICU, uh behavioral health, and, and um we're going to be implementing neurosurgery you say, wait a minute, you can't operate long distance. Uh, probably not, although I guess with robotics one day we might be able to, but at least the consultation to look at these scans, to, to do a, a bedside assessment with a, the help of a, of a nurse practitioner or PA or a physician on the other end can actually work quite well. But this is what we know. This is the clinic-based um, face-to-face. This is one of our colleagues, Eric Wallace, who, uh, who has worked with me a lot in preparation for this talk. He's our guru of all things telemedicine at UAP. And you can see he's got a nice big screen there with the patient on it. And pre-COVID, we weren't doing a lot of that. But with COVID, that was a game changer. So I don't have to go through all the negatives of COVID. we lived through that. Some of us, like me, even had the infection. Pretty awful. But one silver lining is that while we were, and to use behavioral terms, pre-contemplative about telemedicine before COVID, Covid pushed us over the edge and sort of off the cliff, so that we got to we have to embrace this. So let's look at what was happening as Covid hit. There was avoidance of healthcare by, by up to forty percent of adults in the in the United States, and some of that was because uh, access might have been impaired, but a lot of it was fear of contagion. Um, television uh, coverage showing overwhelmed ERs with COVID patients coughing and uh, they're saying, I don't want to go near that place. I'll tough this out. And I'm not going to go to my clinic or perhaps in, like in our case for a while, we actually put a moratorium for a little bit on face-to-face, non-essential, non-emergent visits. So a lot of elective things were canceled and routine patient visits were canceled by decree. And so the in the 10 weeks following the declaration of COVID as a national emergency, visits to the ER declined, and so we saw fewer heart attack, strokes, and, and diabetes uh, urgent episodes. And, you know, it sort of makes me ask, and all of you ask, well, wait a minute, does that mean they didn't have a heart attack or a stroke or a ketoacidosis? Uh, mm, I doubt it. I mean, I think they just were, were not coming in to be assessed. I suspect if it was uh, form frost, and they were in the throes of a horrible heart attack that came in, but if they had chest pain or at least a rule out heart attack, they might've just toughed it out at home. So this is a graphic of how the, um, comparing to 2019 and the light blue and in the darker blue 2020, you can see that right about March, April of last year, we had a significant drop in ER visits overall. And, um, a a huge decline in non COVID admissions. And depending on where you were and where the epidemic hit you, um, I I can recall for us just being terribly demoralized, walking down our usual wards and and looking around and seeing that, uh, we had, uh, every floor was filled wall to wall with COVID patients. It was horrible. So elective procedures were stopped and things, um, Basically, as we knew it, uh, halted. Um, But outpatient care also took the hit, as we've alluded to. And sometime around the summer into the fall, it started to rebound. And at least at our clinic, we're kind of back to normal. And we're not doing all that much telemedicine now, although a lot of patients liked it. They liked not having to get in their car and drive. They said they felt fine, especially these well, what we call well baby visits, where somebody's coming in and most of your time talking about. How's life and what's going on at their job? And, and the medical side is pretty straightforward. Uh, these are data uh, talking about how the uptake, this is UAB data, but here's national data in terms of uh, direct-to-consumer uh, visits through the outpatient center and virtual dominated back in April, May, June, and then started to tail off uh, into the summer and fall. This is a little uh, sort of mini graphic, uh, that shows, um, that 91% of all providers by the end of beginning of the summer were using telehealth. That's huge. That number would have been less than 5% prior to COVID. Um, one of the interesting things was, um, they did some sort of crazy estimate about the number of driving hours, uh, that were, uh, reduced because patients were driving to and from. And I know that a lot of you are at at sort of regional centers where patients do drive distance to come in to be seen. And they looked at that as a benefit. So they, they generated uh, here in 2020, $41 million in charges that would have been lost had they not had a formal program for collecting and telehealth. Um, and they go on further. So I guess this is some green person who said they uh, reduced emissions uh, of a thousand cars off the road. I don't know how you calculate that. Um, so what changed th- the site, we can now see patients from home or from work or some other location that's secure for them, that they can find a secure place at work. Um, that this notion of r- rural urban distinction other than access to internet or other things was removed. And this modification where audio visits alone were allowed, uh, was a big change. Um, Coverage for telehealth became universal, and state licensure, I'll talk about it now. It's a really awkward situation we're in, because if I'm here in Alabama, I have a fair number of patients from Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, or Florida who will drive in to see me, and no one questions that. If I do telehealth and they're at home in Georgia or Florida, then I'm practicing medicine in that state technically without a license. At least that's viewed by the medical societies of those states. So we're dealing with some of this. And for during COVID, that kind of got relaxed. It's going to be interesting to see how it gets resolved. To my knowledge, that's still an issue and something we have to work through. Uh, we could get into a debate about that that makes sense, but that's what it is. Um, and people got used to it. What are some of the real problems? Well, STI... Uh, HIV testing, this is in St. Louis, uh, dropped dramatically. Chlamydia testing, gonorrhea testing, syphilis testing. Now, some people have shown that um, it just sort of random, quote, hookups through apps and other things, at least in the early part of COVID, dropped off. So you could argue that uh, maybe the actual diseases were dropping off, but we don't really know because we didn't test as much. And I think we missed a lot of STIs during that time. And Dr. Landeville's can mention this more in the PrEP talk, but the notion of um, uh, PrEP engagement also declined. People didn't come in for those visits because they were viewed more or less as optional. And uh, prescriptions dropped in Georgia, Massachusetts, where they actually measured it. And also um, new PrEP users decreased, as shown from these data from Texas and Illinois. The other horrible consequence of COVID besides the disease itself, was a big spike in substance use, and in particular, fentanyl. And that translated into a lot of overdoses and deaths, not from COVID, but a consequence of COVID through the isolation, through the mental health issues that popped up. And speaking of mental health, um, uh, for a lot of us, including providers, um, we were noticing that um, uh, we were suffering with demoralization and some depression. Our patients were as well. And so a lot of that did not get addressed. Mental health, uh, engagement in telemedicine, um, is, is, has a few more restrictions than just regular tele, a lot of, a lot of uh, details, but it can be quite effective. Um, so some of the barriers, uh, how likely is the coverages that got approved for COVID going to continue? We have a lot of us now develop the infrastructure, whether we, how much we use it in the future is not clear, but I think we have broken through the barrier of using telehealth. Um, there currently are some limitations of technology that I think that will be overcome in the next five year and the licensure issues is something I've already mentioned. So telehealth, I think should be available to us and continue how we use it is gonna be somewhat individualized based on us our patient population, how well we can accrue cost uh, or reimbursement for care. Um, we have to have our healthcare system become more efficient and actually telemedicine can help that. I think we become better providers when a, when a patient portal is available. Patients like that they have some access. It's a little bit easier than a phone call to go through a phone tree and then leave a voice message. Um, putting it on the portal works. Um, we know these tools are they're coming into our disposal, those of us who have used it. So to realize these benefits, um, we have to have the current payment structure stay in place. Um, we need a national license. This is a term that they use in the world of telemedicine, but for rare disease, meaning something other than diabetes or high blood pressure. But HIV would fit into that. It's not rare, but you need a specialist. And um, we're going to have to work through that. And then e-consults and billing and the consent issues and uh, payment issues are going to have to be worked out. Um, So in conclusion, we now have the possibility of truly revolutionizing our care. Um, You can decide personally what you like about it, what you don't. Patients are voting with their feet somewhat. Some of them really say, I love that. Why can't we do more of that? Um, But if we're going to do that, we're going to have to find a way to get the testing done locally, especially if they live a good distance away from the clinic, Um, have to continue the reimbursement, uh, organize to get licensures, that issue settled, and uh, this home testing capacity that I mentioned. So I think I'm ending about on time and happy to take questions. Thanks for having me and for your attention.
0: Thanks, Mike. That was really a a fascinating and outstanding overview um, of sort of what we've all been dealing with, with telemedicine. Um, And I really appreciate that, that perspective and the challenges. You know, I know something you've been thinking a lot about is, you know, particularly as it relates to HIV care and HIV prevention care, you know, trying to leverage these sort of remote or self or home collection for STIs. And what's your experience with trying to get that done using community-based partnerships and what's the reimbursement structure and how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great point. The reimbursement is always going to be a struggle, but I I think for PrEP, and you'll be talking about this maybe some in your next talk, but um, I I think for PrEP, there have been a lot of studies using self-collection and i think it's pretty good um so perhaps having kits uh at home uh where uh someone can uh, pee in a cup and then maybe do a, a a rectal swab or anal swab that might be uh sufficient it takes some training and then just mail it in community partnerships are essential um and the question is trust and how do you set up payment and and um and if there's any liability if if things get a little bit out of whack when a when a community person goes to someone's home, um, but I think that can help us a lot in prevention. Um, what if the test is positive? Well, you know, it's not like we can do this um, uh, in at home as easily. Uh, pills, of course, but but if they need injections of ceftraxone that type of thing, it will require some home nursing that I don't think we can rely on the community volunteers or community. Uh, folks to do. But we do need to start thinking out of the box in this way. If we're going to really have impact on 90-90-90, like we all want to do, um, we're going to have to be innovative and think about ways to get treatment to patients and have testing available at home.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. I think that's really, really critical with sort of um, trying to keep the, the 2020 and now the 2030 um, UNAIDS goals in mind and how are we going to get there with these Disruptors going on. So, so, um, I really appreciate the thoughtful sort of consideration of that. Um, one of our um, audience members is noting that when they've tried to leverage community partners, or order labs remotely, um, as many as 20% of, of the patients end up not sort of following through and getting those ordered labs drawn because of the extra complexity and not one stop shopping. And, Wondering if your your team is having experience with that, or any thoughts on
1: solutions to that. Uh, I, I, we haven't because we haven't really implemented it across the board. We were just getting into that as the restrictions on face to face visits came back, and all of us wanted to get back to face to face, so we um, sort of paused the effort. So the question person who asked the question is further along than we were at least in routine care, and I think those points are the, are very valid. Those are some of the barriers to implementation of this type of approach, and we're going to have to figure it out. It might be the type of thing where we um, uh, sort of uh, let the patients vote with their feet, more or less, and say, oh, you have an option. You can do this at home, but if you do, this is what's going to be asked of you, and if you don't want all that, just come on into the clinic and sort of have let, make it more Tailored to what the patient wants, I think that, in some kind of way, is going to be the solution.
0: That's certain. the The movement towards sort of shared decision making as a model in so many aspects of medicine um, seems to make sense because it it sort of meets people where they are, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that also empowers the patient uh, if they're if they help make the decision, the likelihood of their adherence, whatever word you want to use, compliance with follow-through is going to be much higher than if they're more or less told what to do without asking what they wanted for themselves.
0: um, um, One of our um, uh, our audience members is wondering, um, you you know, there have been some anecdotal recommendations to, um, you know, go, uh, you know, off first-line STI treatment guidelines when trying to manage some of these positive test results you might get remotely at home and use sort of unconventional or certainly not first line oral treatment regimens if people aren't willing or aren't able to come in for an injectable therapy for example for gonorrhea um or syphilis Uh, do you have any experience with that you know there are some algorithms floating around on the internet that of course not not validated or endorsed
1: yeah i haven't really changed antiretroviral therapy based on that at least to date um I, i think that uh We've been pushing hard for uh, a very robust uh, testing program, and usually we treat during uh, based on symptoms and just empirically so that we don't have to, have to have them come back while the test is pending. And I think that's the way that we've approached it. Um, the testing at home does sort of change that dynamic. It, if, if Even if I'm doing a telemedicine visit, the person tells us that they've got dysuria, say it's a male patient, um, and we uh, suspect chlamydia and gonorrhea, it's not easy just to give them an injection right there at home. Um, I think that's going to be a problem. I, again, the first part of the question as far as changing the ARVs, um, that's not something that I've got. I don't know if you've done that, Rafi, but I haven't really engaged in that.
0: No, I haven't. And I wasn't sort of proposing that, but some you know some people have you know proposed either using quinolones up front for you know, gonorrhea, even given the resistance rate or cefixime, Um, and, you know, then sort of just seeing if you get some response and, it, you know, possibly a test of cure in cases that aren't more traditionally recommended. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, I think you're on a little bit of shaky ground, but sometimes desperate times do call for desperate measures.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, and the hazard would be, especially with quinolones at every other place on earth has noticed that when they get overused, it just breeds resistance. But in a given situation, uh, it's better to have some treatment than no treatment, I suspect. And uh, and I think also maybe partnering with the local health departments, they have resources in almost every state to do the follow-up and maybe do some home treatment. So that's something we haven't explored as far as injections. Usually it's done in the public health department clinics, but I think uh, that's another option for us as we're sitting here discussing it
0: yeah thanks thanks Mike. I, I think you know happily, you know most places I think at this point are having a little bit more of a return to normalcy, so we aren't going to be forced at least at this juncture you know into sort of these deviations from you know the norms of practice. but I think you know it certainly has been provocative to have these disruptive challenges and wondering if there's another wave this fall or winter or the next pandemic. you know how are we going to think about these things and be ready?
1: Well, I think that's exactly right, and one again, I think it's a silver lining of COVID that it forced all of us into the realm, uh, as opposed to just imagining what it would be or kind of dabbling here and there. We dove in with both feet, all of us, because uh, we had to, and then we developed a sense of how it worked or what we liked about it, what we didn't like. As I said earlier, I'm I'd rather have an impatient in-person visit. Sorry, I just like that better, but. If the patient chooses, for whatever reason, distance is a big one, um, to to have at least one telehealth visit per year as opposed to every six months driving in, I think we can accommodate that, and we have the technology. It's just a question of the details on the back end to get the testing done.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike, and thanks for a, a great discussion. We have one final sort of comment that I'd love to hear your thoughts on from one of our audience members. Um, you know, wondering or musing that maybe, you know, because of potentially lower reimbursements, do you think insurance companies are going to sort of force telemedicine or obligate telemedicine use in place of in-person visits? Or is that sort of not the way you think things are heading?
1: I wouldn't be surprised. Um, it's, you know, the payers force us to, to change practice all the time. Um, even how we record our notes and review a systems and things that we may not think to do medically as being all that important, we play the game because our reimbursement is tagged to it. I think it's possible, if not likely, hopefully there are data that would support such decisions. But for uh, above all, I think on the other end, we should insist on reimbursement for the effort. Um, and I think we should be thinking also about reimbursement for portal activity. I mean, it takes a fair amount of time every day for me, I'm sure for all of us to look back at the, the portal, see what types of questions have come in. It's not an enormous number, but it does take some time. And it's good care, it's important care, and we should be compensated, maybe not a huge amount, but some.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. And I think, you know, when we get to the panel at the end, it'd be good to sort of think also a little bit more with you about what you've seen for your patients you know, with um, mental health and substance use disorders, and if we're really just exacerbating disparities because those people are probably less likely to have access to technology to be able to do telehealth. And if we can't do in-person visits, are we just sort of making things worse, not better for some? Yeah, important. And I, I
1: look forward to that panel because we can share the ideas among us. That's great. Yeah.
0: All right. Thank you again, Mike, for a great presentation and discussion. Yeah.